Hello, we are live. Last Friday of May. Oh. Yes, sir. Coffee with the Johns. My favorite month. <laughs> it's your favorite month. It's your birthday month. Yeah, I know. That's why. Um, we got some interesting articles today that we're going to be covering and some uh, news about the real estate market. Uh, we got a lot going on. We have uh, Warren Buffett getting into the real estate construction side. So that's going to be interesting to go over. We have uh, one of the biggest hedge fund managers has jumped into the Bitcoin game as well after pretty much uh, always talking about, you know, it was a very bad idea. He wasn't in favor of Bitcoin. Now, all of a sudden, he's investing in it. Uh, We're going to be talking about how investors are snatching up a lot of single family, which is causing a lot of the shortage of properties in, in the United States. San Antonio has uh, record home values. I mean, we, we have a lot going on. And we're, one of the biggest topics we're going to be hitting on today is the hybrid work from home model. It doesn't seem to really be working for a lot of people. So we're going to be talking about that. Make sure you share this on social. Invite your friends. Let them know what we do. Let them know All what this them. is about. Every single one of them. Because this is, uh, you know what we do, right? Like we just, we want to make sure... You are understanding the trends that are developing. You are understanding what's happening in the market. So when you are thinking about doing marketing, doing investing, doing anything, you are much better prepared. So with that being said, I am your host, John Barbarian. With me, as always, is co-host extraordinaire himself, Mr. John Barr. <laughs> How's it going, sir? I've been a while. Oh, good. Good? good? Yeah. How was the birthday? Good birthday week? Your birthday month? Well, it was on last Saturday, so it was last week your birthday week or this week the birthday week? Well, it would probably be last week, but I see the, yeah, here, here. It's a two-week. Yeah, alcohol like, is still in your it's system. On the, it's, on, it's on the weekend. It just goes well, the week is Monday to Sunday, so. Or week is within seven days of before or after. Oh, here we go with your interpretation of facts. Um, so, I, was I take I was it there good. was a lot of drinking. No. <laughs> Not really. But uh, you had some fun time, right? Yeah. Did some kayaking. and yeah, I did some kayaking with my family on Saturday morning down the river. It was drizzling and raining, but it actually wasn't that bad. Cause it was, you were it was on the least, water anyway. Yeah, we were on the water. It was, wasn't thirty degree, or wasn't like 50 degrees outside, so it was still yeah. like 75, 80 degrees. So it was like the rain coming down. It was like, it, it was nice. nice. It actually wasn't that bad. So we kind of expected it. So we just wore clothes that could get wet, and we just kind of kayaked up the river and back down. And, and you're what, 32 now? 32, yep. Uh, bones starting to hurt a little more, a little harder to get up in the mornings. Oh, I think that's more due to more ju- oatmeal for breakfast. I think it's more due, due to jujitsu and uh, rugby in college more than anything. Using else. our uh, using our yeah. bodies as a playground. Yeah, yeah. it's like uh, kind of catches up to you as you get older, huh? Yeah, it does. I mean, I notice I'm sitting here. I'm like, man, my freaking hands, my fingers hurt. Why? And I'm like, oh yeah. I was like, ah, yeah, yeah. Um, all right. So we got a lot of topics. Anything that you would like to kind of kick it off with or you want me to pick? What are you in the mood for? I mean, this is a real estate business show and we are a real estate company. Yeah. So I think it's, it's only fair to start off with real estate. 
And it's one that is a, I was having a conversation with our uh, bookkeeper and stuff the other day about uh, what interest rates are doing for investment properties that they're getting into the high fours. And mm. he had, he's like, or his friend sent him a property. He goes, man, that seems really hot. Let me send it to a few other people that I know to see if that's right. And he goes, yeah, man, investor properties are getting high. And I think it's due to the fact that more investors are buying, I mean, this is speculation, more investors are buying property. And that's not what the politicians want. They want home ownership to, to buy basically and who has cash. It's people that are were successful or had jobs or in tech or anything like that that had assets during the pandemic that didn't lose their jobs, so they gained all the money. And yeah. now they're going and buying properties, so people that are trying to get started in their lives can't afford them. Millennials, uh, lower and lower middle class, it's it's outpricing home ownership and turning them more into long term rentals. And it goes to show that, like, I mean, st- case after case after study shows that home ownership does lead to a wealthier more secure future than renting your entire life on a uh, my, my pa- thing uh, in, uh, on a uh, nationwide basis. So my my thing on that, I don't know if you are gonna get into an article. That was kind no, of like well, I the was point gonna get into an article, but but like my thing with with that, even with that premise, is that um, I mean, investors buy distressed properties. So well, not necessarily. Uh, okay, so that's what I'm curious about because you know. Most investors are looking for some distressed property that you want to build some equity, right? You want to have some equity in the property, you, you cash flow, stuff like that, right? You want to get a deal. You want to get something that makes sense. So, and then you have your retail market that are buying retail-ready houses. Well, I think so have, how is this? I think you have two different class of investors. You have okay. retail investors, and then you have real estate investors like ourselves. As like, you have the people that are like, I want to go buy that have cash. And it's like, I don't want to invest in stocks. I don't want to invest in this stuff. And I believe in the overall long-term appreciation of real estate. So I don't care if it cash flows. I have plenty of cash to sustain the asset. So I'm just going to go buy a retail-ready house. Taking right. that off the market from somebody else. They want to buy a house they can buy and immediately rent. They don't want to do rehabs. They don't want to mess with stuff. They want to be in the asset class of housing because they believe in the appreciation. I mean, just look at it. We're 10, 11 months of double-digit appreciation here in San Antonio and the basically the entire nation has yeah. seen double digit appreciation year over year towards like if I just bought the house, yes, there's some sales and um, transaction costs involved with that. But you look at it, it's like, all right, you bought this $250,000 house. It's 10% year over year. It's now worth two seventy five. It's like, okay, you basically sold in a year and you still made your money back. So like over the long term, mm. You and that's just on the value of the house. That's not including any cash flow you get from it. So overall, it's a very good diversifier, and they're not wanting to go through the retail stock market. They want to buy houses from there. So I think that's what this article is kind of portraying, and what you're asking, like we're buying distressed properties. Yeah. I think it's a small subset of people buying distressed properties, like we do, because it'd be very hard to get that data of who's buying a dis- true distressed property. To where if it's on the MLS or on Zillow or anything, that's where they get the bulk of their data from, and those are retail-ready houses, not today, not like they were back ten years ago when they were flooded with properties. And there's no good way to. There wasn't enough investors buying property. All right. So, well, g- get it. Get into the article because then I, I want to see what they're. So, uh, this are. is an article from Housing Wire. It says, after three straight quarters of declines, home purchases by investors rose 2.7% year over year in the first quarter of 2020, making the first period of growth since the COVID-19 pandemic began per a new study from Redfin. Looking to take advantage of the hot housing market and soaring stock market, investors bought about one of every seven U.S. homes in the first quarter. 
Investors' purchase purchases of high-priced homes jumped 19.8% year-over-year, and that's kind of what really reframed my mind. Is like high-priced homes, investors are buying high-priced homes. For us, it's like investors like us don't buy high-priced homes. We buy for cash flow. But from these, this perspective, it's like, no, these type of investors are buying buying high-priced homes at the bigger clip of anything else. So that was in the first quarter. By comparison, investors' purchase of mid-priced homes rose 12.7%, and low-priced homes declined 9.2%. Sales of luxury homes specifically rose 41.6% year-over-year in the first quarter of 2021, crushing sales of affordable homes 7% increase in mid-priced homes at 5.9%. Middle to lower income homes are thinking twice about selling their homes for fear of not being able to afford new homes, the chief economist Fairweather said for Redfin. So that's where I was just saying, it's like investors aren't buying low priced homes or anything like that from your retail side. Uh, but the article does leave uh, Trey into all that being said, investors still gob up the largest share of low priced homes in the first quarter as well. One of every five low priced homes sold in the US, 20.8% was purchased by an investor. So your lower entry level price homes are still being purchased at five to, or one of every five. And they're one of every seven of the entire market, but they're starting to trend towards higher priced homes where the inventory actually is. So, so now with this data, like I'm trying to rationalize a little bit, like of you know who would they constitute as an investor? Like, are these second homes or are these actual like investment properties that they're buying that they're later they're turning to? An Airbnb well, or you, a rental or something. Well, these like. are purely investors because second home is a completely different class of mortgage versus investor. So you and if you have an investment loan, because you can still get you can put ten percent down on a second home. Yeah, investment you have to put twenty percent down. So these are investment properties that they're putting at least twenty percent down in order to purchase. So you have different classification of investor, second home. So these are legit investors. Then, uh, well, I that's mean, what it like, seems like, anyways. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it, it does make sense because as we talked about before and we keep seeing, it's like as a dollar keeps getting devalued, you know, you are looking at what is going to retain my value and home, a home is, you know, a house. Well, like, I mean, just real, just real, assets. real assets, yeah. so stocks, bonds, or not bonds, but like stocks, real estate, gold, physical, mo- like you look at cars, they're appreciated. Bitcoin, art, uh, douchecoin. Yeah, I mean. Well, time will tell. Time will tell on that one how that's going to work out. Uh, but your tried and true areas that are like a physical, actual pieces of ownership, something that produces some form of right. value. So, like Bitcoin doesn't produce any value. Uh, same thing with kind of like gold. But gold's been around for so long that it's saying like, hey, as it's been kind of proven that as time goes, gold continues to rise in relation to other uh, its currencies and things like that. So that's where I think people are flooding to. That's where I'm saying like people that have money. Like from the east, west coast, high price or high income earners, like they have extra cash. It's like, man, I'm already maxing out 401ks. I'm already maxing IRAs out. And it's like, I have extra cash around. Mm-hmm. What do I invest in? It's like, well, real estate's been hot. It is hot. It's on the, all the headlines about how hot it is, how much the values are going up. So it's bringing people in. I'm just saying like, look, I got an extra 50, 60 grand. Like I can go buy an investment property from the retail market and then just stick a tenant in it. And even though I break even or get a little negative, it's that appreciation that I'm going after. So, man, I, I always, every time I hear that, I just get goosebumps. Of when people say, you know, I don't care that I don't cash flow. I'm just going for the appreciation because it's oh, like, 
uh, don't get me wrong. If you have plenty of money in the bank after you made that bet, by all means, good for you, right? You have the money, you understand, you're savvy. But where it gets me nervous is when you're having people that they don't have extra funds, they don't have extra savings, and they're already negative, counting on appreciation to save their ass. Like, yes, right now for what we see, I mean, we don't see appreciation stopping anytime soon, right? But if it does, what do you do then? Not only are you negative cash flow, but you're over leveraged. So it's like... <laughs> Boy, you're getting yourself in a well. I mean, and hell that's of a predicament. That we had that comment that somebody said that bidding up prices and stuff that you had me comment on YouTube. Yeah, the other day. and it's like, well, you're looking at it for the wrong reason. Then it's like if you're buying, like, oh, prices are just so expensive. I don't. It's like, okay, if you can't afford it, then yes, you can't afford it. Uh, but it's one of the things that people are like. But housing prices are too high. I don't know if the prices are going to go down. It's like, well, then you're looking at it from the wrong reason. Like, real estate as a homestead is not an investment. Like until you sell the house later on it's a liability so you have to look at can i afford that liability for the next five ten years with the cost of everything considered as far as repairs maintenance property tax increases insurance increases you need to run your budget from that aspect and most people look at it as like well i just want the investment aspect of it because i can sell it in two years and it's worth more make money it's like yeah, ideally yeah ideally yeah it's like but ask somebody that bought in 2007 how long it took for them to recoup their equity even here in texas it still took them 12 years or not 12 years um till 2012 of five four or five years to start breaking even and stuff like that yeah uh to cover sales costs because it's sales costs of real estate are drastically high comparatively to other asset classes where it's like you're from eight to ten percent to sell your house plus any kind of repairs and maintenance you need to do in order to sell that house so it's very expensive yeah, and so I, I mean that kind of that kind of goes into a article that I had on here that I wasn't sure it, it didn't. I mean, it had some interesting data, but not that much. But to tie into it a little bit, they're saying that sixty four percent of millennials have regrets about buying their current home, and you know, once you actually look at the article, it's not really sixty four percent. It's like fourteen percent regret this part, ten percent regret that part. You know what I mean? Like, it's just different little areas of uh, this process. But what pretty much what the article is saying is like right now, buying a home is become like a leap of faith. People are buying houses sight unseen. They're bidding on houses that they're not even quite sure. They haven't taken the time. They're waiving inspections. They're waiving appraisals. They're waiving all these things. They're waiving option periods. So a lot of people in... You know, they they think like that's the hardest part. It's like once the high of actually buying the house wears off, they're like, then they start looking at the house and they start realizing like there was a small percentage of people about like, I think it was like 14% um, regretted where the house was located. Like that's, that you can't change that. <laughs> you oh, know what well, I mean? Like that is not th- something yeah. that you can just say, uh, you know, it's not like, hey, you know, I really regret... I don't know, the color of this kitchen or some... No, it's like you're regretting oh, for the sure. location I mean, of the home. I know when I bought my first house in 2013 that I lived in uh, and where I worked, it was like I was one of the things like I wanted easy access to a highway from where I worked out in Bernie because I was commuting 15, 20 miles mm-hmm. outside of the city to where it's like I want to make sure it's easy access to it um, to that road because I don't want to sit in traffic forever. I don't want to sit there, waste 30 minutes of my day just trying to make it to a highway. And I think that's a huge aspect about housing that people don't take into account when they're driving to house to house to house to house to house to house. They don't 
and right now it's like they don't have the time to say i like this house let me see what it's like during traffic hours What's during like uh, during rush hour? How is it to get to a grocery store during certain times of day that I want to get to? You don't have that. It's like you have to jump and just buy it and be like, well, I have to take what I can get because that's that's it. Yeah. Or you really have to focus on a specific area and then have to see like, all right, I really want this area because of its location. I like that location. Where do I buy now or what do I buy? And it's like, I just got to buy whatever I can get. Or you're sitting there just waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. Right. And then that fear of missing out, watching prices rise and rise and rise and worrying about getting bid out to where it's like, yeah, it's a very, very difficult time to be a uh, retail home buyer yeah. today. And then in the article, they also said among all homeowners, including millennials, the most common regret is underestimating how much the maintenance expenses and other hidden costs associated with buying and owning a home are. And this says roughly about 21% of millennials regretted that. And that is something like when people say, you know, I've always had the argument because people always ask me, why do I rent versus own? And like I tell them, like, you don't understand what it is to own a home. Like owning a home, they because they look at it very basically like you have your mortgage, you're building equity, you're paying it down. You, it's a good uh, investment, right? It's like, first of all, it's not an investment until I actually sell and realize that that actual growth that I've had in the house. And then even then, is the house updated enough or in the conditions to warrant that equity that's been built up based on the neighborhood, right? So it's more money you got to put in. For homeowners, sometimes that is a lot more money then we would spend because we have the contractors, we know the materials, we know the process, we know exactly what to put in a home to keep the cost as low as we can, right? So they don't understand the process that's like actually owning a home, things happen to it, right? Your, your water heater breaks, your AC goes out, you need this maintenance, you need that maintenance. Next thing you know, you're like, holy crap, anything that goes wrong, especially right now, it's like, it's costing me probably like $500, $1,000 to fix. Yeah. You know, because most homeowners, what do they got to do? They got to call somebody. Who are they going to call? Not the Ghostbusters, but they're going to call, you know, they're going to go on well, Google. Where do I go? They go to Angie's List. They go to the, those types of investors that do cost significantly more to where like, yeah. hey, I can get a new AC. Yeah, I can get a new AC stalled for, depending on the size, anywhere from four to $6,000 to where, hey, you go to some other places and it can get a little warm there. No, I'm so anxious to drink it. <laughs> uh, that... They're going to pay $10,000, $12,000 of roofs. I mean, my God, you pay like 10, 12 grand for a new roof that's like, I can get the whole same roof done for 4,500 bucks. Like when it comes to insurance aspects of it. So you see, or even, those even what we've seen personally is when people have had their foundations fixed, right? Oh, God. And they're like, yeah. But I already got my foundation fixed and it, you know, and they paid 35 grand for it. I was like, oh, and they, they like, I put 35 grand. I'm like, I get you paid 35 grand for it, but. I would have paid eight. You know what I mean? Like, and the same, I had this one seller that he says, I just put these brand new windows in. They cost me $9,500. And I was like, they cost me like 14. I was like, I'm sorry. Like, I'm not going to pay you more just because, you know, you overpaid well, that's, because that's you hired a Google contract. I've had conversations with people you know? like, what is it? Uh, I was talking with somebody and they put an offer on a house and, appraisal was way off from what it came was like yeah i just don't think they took into effect that uh they put new doors and windows in the house and they just done the foundations like none of that matters to the, nope. the to the appraiser like it's the fact that it, you can i remember having the conversations like so you're telling me i could have plywood siding 
on a house next to somebody with nice brick stucco, something like that. And those houses could be of equal value. He goes, exactly. Unless you can prove a actual difference in the homes where it's like, hey, this house over here had plywood. And the only thing different was the plywood siding or just let's call it. The team 111, the cheapest stuff you can find as far as siding. And the house next door had this, and they are exactly the same. And this one sold less, and that's the only difference. And I can find that difference across the neighborhood, saying, like, it is definitely the siding that is causing that. Then I can discount the property for that, the yeah. windows, the roof, anything like that. So those don't take into account. They have very, very – that basically you have a condition uh, aspect that you can adjust on an, apprais an appraisal. Yeah. And the condition has to involve the condition of the home, not saying, oh, because you have new windows, we're going to give extra value for those windows. No, it's like we can give you a condition adjustment, but just because you have new windows and the other house doesn't, doesn't warrant a house condition being improved uh, on a, a, a grand scale. And as you know, I have new neighbors, and the, we were trying to actually buy that house before the new neighbors moved in because the house was in really bad conditions. It had major foundation issues. It needed to be updated. It needed work. It needed to be bought by an investor. So the owner of the house decided to leave it as a wedding gift to his uh, daughter. And I was like, man, you hate your daughter. <laughs> they're fixing up the house and and they I've told them that you got to start with the foundation. I mean, I, I can throw out every cliche out there about a strong foundation, but let's bypass all the cliches. You got to fix your foundation cuz everything yeah. above it just is not going to matter. They obviously can't. They can't afford the foundation repair, yeah. right? So, they've been fixing the rest of the house, everything. They've had plumbing issues like two or three times already. And I'm like, you're going to continue to have plumbing issues. The house is not supported properly. The water, the way the whole street goes, like all the water from my neighbor's house, my house, everything dumps on their house. So I'm like, you're having, to, every time when it rains, like you're having all the water just sit on your foundation, like around your foundation, everything. And like, you need to put like either guttering and I'm telling them all these things and they're just, it's one problem after another they keep having. They're like, man, yeah, especially this, the this way house is... Especially the way your roof pitches, and it's only like 10 Everything. feet to the next no, house. Yeah. So it's like, just... it's just right there, and there's a fence. There's no grass. There's no tree. There's a tree that covers it, so you couldn't grow grass. No, and it yeah. just, It's just a stop. It's just a nice little freaking waterfall right into their foundation. And, I, and, you know, they're like, this house has just become such a money pit. And I was like, but that's the thing. It's like, that's what people don't understand about home ownership. People think, oh, it's an investment. It, you know, it, it's something that I'm going to build equity. I'm going to have forever, blah, blah, blah. No. Well, I mean, like, the, you gotta, you gotta, and then I'm not saying don't own a home by all means. What I'm saying is like, you gotta factor all these things in. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not just, I qualify for a house, so let me buy a house. No, oh, I agree. I mean, it, and then people start with the wrong side because yes, the foundation is the most expensive thing. Well, I can't afford to fix that. I was like, well, then you can't afford the house yeah. because it's gonna, it's gonna eat you alive down the road as far as like, so, and then you, uh, given, they were gifted the house they could sell to an investor and with price appreciation they might actually do all right uh in the investment but it's like that's a pure gamble that is just like well the thing it. is like the, the more money they're putting in the more they're losing because all that money like i told them they were they were putting they were doing new floors texturing inside painting all this i was like as an investor i'm gonna come in and be like yay good job but i gotta rip up all the floors because yeah. i gotta fix the foundation yeah 
Fixing the foundation, well, we, I'm going to crack all the fix, walls. Well, the thing is, we fixed the house that you live in now. Like, yeah. we fixed that one up, and it's right next door. And we had to lift the entire house, and we had to basically redo all the plumbing. We had a void underneath that house. I remember that. You can all stand up in how yeah. deep it was because of the way the streets were and how we had to gut it out underneath there with dirt just for the fact that it's like we had to get to the plumbing. And it ran from all over parts of the house to yeah. fix it so it's like yeah all the flooring is trash and just like the house that we're doing um right now that we bought it and the seller a less than a year ago fixed all the plumbing underneath the house redid yeah. all the plumbing and now it's like we got to go back and redo all the plumbing because we the entire house had 47 piers and we had to lift from i think it's six inches from the back of the house to the front and all the freaking uh plumbing was on the back side of the house so it ripped all of that stuff and when we lifted it and now it's like well now you you gain no value in the house by fixing spending five thousand dollars fixing all the plumbing because i just spent 15 lifting the foundation and now i got to go back and spend another five to grand fix all the plumbing underneath again yeah and it's like you spend yeah it and, and you don't get extra value for fixing the plumbing it's just like well you're supposed to have a house with working plumbing so well, you're also, not well, you're also, not gonna get extra value for that well it's also one of the things that i think people look at that it's like well i'll afford the foundation later so i'll fix this i can afford to fix these things now it's like no, you should be saving up to fix the foundation first before you go texturing, painting, putting new cabinets, kitchens. Because like people don't understand like how jacked up a foundation can really be, especially if you don't understand. Like I get it if you kind of like us and say, "Hey, I know I'm gonna need to fix that corner of the house over there eventually." Like Grand Tilly. Yep. You know what? I I don't need to spend the money to fix that now because I can fix all this stuff and it's no big deal yep. because it's in two opposite corners of the house where there's no plumbing. It's not that big a deal. To, it's not gonna mess with anything. Yeah. Too much. Uh, so and it, it was such a small deviation. It wasn't yeah. six inches like we've yeah. had on other ones. Yeah, and then exactly. also, like I mean, a big thing to take in mind is that we've had uh, uh, some people criticize the way that we buy our rentals because we buy houses that are at pretty much flip numbers because we do this level of rehab to keep as a rental. And people say, "Oh, you don't know how to invest in rentals." And I beg to differ because, again, the amount of money you're going to spend on maintenance because you're not fixing these things, are going to kill any and all cash flow you're going to have. Plus, you're going to piss off any tenants you have in there because with all these problems. Like, If you're going to keep a house long-term, whether it's homestead or rental property, you have to make sure the major components are fixed. You got to make sure they're working. That's why, why do we keep the majority of the houses that we do a massive renovation in? Because it's like, we know we just did everything new. <laughs> we did foundation, we did plumbing, we did roof, we did everything that's like, our risk factor goes way down now. So, hey, podcast, thank you for listening. I hope you're enjoying the show. And if you want to get very exclusive insider tips and strategies that nobody else is getting, then you need to join our text community by texting podcast to 210 that's 210-794-9898. Text the word podcast and you will start receiving insider information, things that are happening that we're realizing that we're implementing in real time that other people have no access to. So make sure you text us now. Now back to this show. Well, I mean, not just that too. It's like, well, uh, and it's kind of fun to now start. Now we're getting to kind of uh, a scale in rental housing the number of properties we own and manage that it's like you can start playing with these numbers like all right if i ignore these repairs how does my tenant respond if i do they move out do they stay and it's like our turnover has been 
significantly low. And even though we're raising rents on yeah. pretty much all of our tenants that are coming to le- uh, renewals, but it's because we do provide, it's like, hey, you have a problem, you let me know. I get somebody out right away. So it's like, I look at that, especially because I rent too. And it's like, if somebody takes longer to get something there, if like, man, if you really don't give a shit about this, then I don't give a shit about this either. And I was like, so that deferred maintenance, that leak, that problem you're hearing about, not that worried about it. Um, you can figure that out later when I move out. So it's like you let them give them the ability to think it's like kind of like their own home. So, yeah. So you want to talk about the San Antonio? Okay. Yeah. So moving along with like values, San Antonio was it? Here's how San Antonio record home value growth stacks up to other cities. Um, and I wanted to kind of get your thoughts on this on what this is might be driving this. So mm-hmm. San Antonio home values are rising at record pace. But they still lag behind the growth scene nationally, according to a new report from Zillow Group. And Zillow obviously has a few numbers that they can compare with. So Zillow found that the typical single-family home in San Antonio is now worth $233,000, up 10.4%, or $22,000 since last April and one6 since March. The platform found that this growth to be the largest in the metro area since tracking such data, which goes back to 1996. It also found that 23% of homes in the San Antonio metro are selling above a list price. San Antonio housing rally is consistent with the market conditions nationwide, with 39 of the top 50 metros seeing double-digit increases in typical home values. That annual growth for a typical U.S. home is 11.6%, the highest since 2005. So... Now, looking at Texas, Austin was up 25.5% year over year, which I was like, oh, my God. Mm -hmm. Dallas-Fort Worth, 11.9%. San Antonio, up 10.4%. And Houston, up 9.1%. Zillow expects the momentum to continue over the next year with 11.8% overall growth through April 2020. And that's why I think you were talking about earlier why retail investors are jumping into the market because they see this projected growth. It's like, dude, you're going to go up another 10%. I'm going for it. So inventory is down. 39.2% 39.2% from last year, uh, which homes on the market for just eight days before going under contract. Zillow economist Jeff Tucker cautioned against comparing the current housing market to the scene in the last run-up to the mortgage crisis in the mid-2000s, saying this market is built on strong fundamentals that and that a housing bubble is not likely. He said that homes will remain scarce until existing homeowners feel more comfortable selling or prices rise enough to restore balance? And my question is, how long can price continue to rise like this? Where is all this money coming from for these homes? I mentioned I, I mentioned this to you yesterday, and you said you had like some topics or some thoughts on that of like what's going to continue driving this market at these high prices like this. And I mean, kind of taking pieces from articles where he said um, housing, is the, the economist said that Homes will remain scarce until existing homeowners feel more comfortable selling or prices rise enough to restore balance. And then you have the other people saying like out of the other article that your middle income housing people are like, yeah, I want to trade up, but I'm afraid I can't go find a house. So I'm not selling. Right. Like what breaks that restores that kind of balance that people can start moving around? Well, my, and this is again, an opinion, um, I can't see prices stop rising as much if we keep dumping more money into the market. Because what that's going to keep doing, you, the more money you dump, the more that money has to go somewhere. 
it has to find and usually finds assets where you have the asset bubble. The more money you dump, the more money people are going to have available, the more they're going to have to spend. People don't, you know, we always talk about how Kiyosaki, if you've heard of Kiyosaki and read Rich Dad Poor Dad, he always says savers are losers because the more they devalue the dollar, the more your savings is worth less and less. So how are prices going to stop rising then? If you keep dumping more and more money into the market, when are prices going to stop? How, okay, so dumping money into the market. It's like, who, the, but I agree with like the stimulus packages and stuff like that because I agree. It's like, hey, all these people have been locked up for a year, year and a half. Uh, they now have got extra stimulus checks. They kept their jobs. So they kept, they didn't work going out and spending because they couldn't go travel. They couldn't go on vacation. They couldn't go do anything. So their bank accounts grew above their normal rates. And now when people we all know aren't financially savvy to where it's like, Hey, I got extra money. So I need to go find something to spend this on. So now when they're having like five, six, seven, ten grand, they're like, man, I can go buy a house. Yeah. But so far we haven't heard about any like direct to person stimuluses that have had any kind of significant windfall or traction of like paying people more money. Well, let's look at what it is. Let's let's don't look at so much like the government data, right? Let's look at what is. What is is that we go to grocery stores, we go to the gas station, everything is costing more. Right? That's inflation. Everything is costing more. Now we're starting to see more and more jobs increase how much they're paying to get more people back to work because people are not willing, wanting, whatever it may be, whatever, you know, I, I, even that has become a political conversation of, <laughs> of getting a job. Uh, but wherever you fall, there's not enough people wanting to go to work. So you don't have enough people wanting to go to work. So it's increasing wages in a lot of areas because it's like, shit, we, we got to pay more because we need to fill these roles because if not, we can't grow. We can't scale. We can't deliver. We can't do any yeah. of these things. So you have people making more money. Things are costing more money. I mean, as more money, it, that's how the money is hitting the market. That's how the money, money is hitting the people. It's hitting it. it it's kind of like that top-down approach of what they always do with tax cuts, right? When they do talk, tax cuts, hoping for a top-down approach is that you cut the taxes for the big corporations. Therefore, they make more money. Therefore, they pay their people more money. They make more money. They spend more. You know, that's supposed to be the the theory behind, the theory it. behind but, it but now they've they kind of flipped it to where they cut the labor at the bottom and paid more at the top and that's forcing the trickle down effect to go like hey we you got these big tax breaks you got all this extra money you got um the, these stock bonuses or all this stuff your stocks have yeah. gone up and it's like and now the labor's like mm, i don't want to go to work for 15 bucks an hour anymore or 12 dollars an hour it's like i want more than that and now i got cash to sustain my lifestyle for the next six months well so it's like yeah. and now like you look at how our capitalism and stock market quarterly reports it's like your job is to increase your stock price so it's like well we got to provide more value we have all this stuff to where like an inventory sitting around actually costs you money or not being able to go capture business i mean somebody else is capturing it so it actually hurts you more so I think that is something that... Uh... Well, and then you also have, you got to look at, like we always talk about, let's say with real estate prices, it's, it is location, right? It is local in a lot of areas. So you got to look at like Texas. We have more and more people every year, every day, every month, every week move into Texas. The more people go after a limited supply, the more that supply goes up. 
mm-hmm. the cost of that supply. So when you're saying when a home price is going to go down or stable off, it's like it's going to depend. You know, maybe if you're in more of a rural city somewhere where nobody's moving there, people are maybe moving away from there. Prices are probably going to stable off or go down in those areas much sooner than they will, like in San Antonio, Austin, Dallas, Houston. Well, I mean, just the South. I was listening to uh, Kathy Fetke this morning mm-hmm. on her real estate uh, five-minute brief, and they said that properties in the South, like they grew faster than any other area than the, when you look at the, the regions, the, the Northeast, the South, Midwest, and the West. Right. And as I think it went, like the South was by far the biggest leader, and the economists, everybody's in like, it's going to continue to grow and it's going to outpace the growth of every other uh, region in the United States. Or it's just like you have so many people moving there. You have like all the, the pandemic that you have all these high placed uh, taxes in the uh, areas like the Northeast and the West. And they're like, man, we're very fluent. We're wealthy. We're moving to Texas and Florida. Yeah. And that's why you see like the, the last uh, census report <laughs> showed that like, where are people moving? Texas and Florida, like they are the two biggest winners, the two biggest economies that are gaining the most, like to where it's going to be easy, interesting to see over the next decade or two to see our, our top two, our top four big producers, which is Texas and Florida, New York and California, like very two different styles of living, very due to political spectrums, very different ways they do business in those states. It's going to yeah. be interesting to see like where things are going to end up because right now the trends are moving from those two states to the two other states. And then- also, like kind of what ties in, and I'll jump into this other article now, is that what ties into how our home price is going to be affected and how it's based on location is you talk about this article was the unintended consequences of a hybrid work model. Right? So the prevailing return to work hybrid model could turn out, uh, it could turn to unintended disastrous consequences. Google, Microsoft, Citigroup, and Ford. Uh, represent the gamut of companies that are offering employees the opportunity to work two or three days a week in the office, but also provide for a substantial amount of people solely working remotely. Here are just some of the uh, time bombs, and I-, I wanted to address each time bomb and kind of we time can just dis- huh? time bomb. I like that. Did I just say that wrong? No, 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 no. Oh. Like you're saying, like, here's the time bombs in that thing. Oh, you don't You know, to... I'm already a little uh, self-conscious about the way I speak English. Don't don't throw things out there, like, making me feel like I pronounced something wrong. Okay? It messes with my ego. Anyway. Um, <laughs> wow. But, but for both management and staff needed to navigate when returning uh, to work at an office setting or continuing at home. So... The old bait and switch trick. When a company says that you don't have to worry about working five days a week in the office, you like to believe it sincerely. Many people will want to go into the office after being stuck at home for so long. A couple of days would be nice. Uh, would be a nice change. You can catch up with old friends and colleagues, enjoy the new experience, partake in the daily gossip, go out for lunch with some friends, and perhaps drinks after work and clients. As time passes managers may start feeling stressed over supervising a widely distributed workforce instead of impromptu and serendipitous meetings everything will need to be scheduled you can imagine the annoyance after the 10th meeting in which the boss has to figure out where everyone is so you have ceo of washingtonian 
the CEO of Washingtonian, Kathy Merrill. Merrill basically uh, threatened her staff that if they didn't return to the office, their status would be changed from employees to contractors. So that's a big savings right there for a company. Exactly. So you have pretty much, and they say the old bait and switch. I don't think it's a bait and switch. Uh, We are going through it and we're not a massive corporation that has, you know, hundreds of employees, but we're going through it with the few people that we do have that we're working from home, but we are seeing exactly what they're talking about. Even when they said, you know, the, the serendipitous of having a meeting impromptu meeting because of something, a system or something's flawed. It's like, all right, let's have a meeting. Let's talk about this real quick where it's like, Oh, well, nobody's here. Yeah. And that's just (laughs) the easy thing to do. Like, you're like, Hey, in a meeting, like you're busy, you're working on something. A lot of times, like I'm focused, I'm working on my thing. And then somebody walks in. Uh, cause I saw this when I was working corporate, they were like, Hey, we need to have a meeting about this and talk right now. And you're like, in the middle of this, but you can't ignore it because you're there in the office. But if it's a digital thing, you see this thing pop across, you're like, I didn't see it. Exactly. I ignored it. Oh, they called you at your computer. Like, well, I was in the bathroom when I missed the call and I didn't see that you missed the call. And so you have very easy ways to hide from yeah. a digital platform or on through a digital space that you can't get away from in the office. And and this conversation is also for everybody watching as well. I would love to hear what you think about each one of these things uh, regarding like maybe if you're going through it yourself or if you know somebody or, or what your thoughts are on this. So the next uh, time bomb is invasive surveillance. So the manager grows suspicious why a phone call, text, or email wasn't answered promptly. It could start out as innocuous technology, innocuous, innocuous technology, there and softwares used to keep track of everybody. Studies are showing that one in four people will be looking for a new job. The manager may believe that the person is busy interviewing. <laughs> Slowly but surely, software will be used to closely monitor the activities of the staff. Employers have increased their usage of monitoring software during the pandemic. According to Gardner, about 75% of conversations at the office may be recorded and assessed by 2025. So this is a recent study by ExpressVPN indicated that nearly 80% of managers use utilize softwares to track employees' performance and or online activities. This includes monitoring internet histories, the amount of time spent on websites, apps used, screen monitoring in real-time chats and emails. So, and this is another area, right? Because now you, you say, employees say, oh, that's invasive and all that. But for the manager, for the owner, whoever's managing the people, it's like, maybe, well... Why is this task taking so long? Why did I send you a message and you haven't responded yet? Well, yeah, what? they have all kinds of softwares now that they could track your mouse movement on your computers. And if it's a company-provided computer and it's part of there, it's like, yeah, like, then don't work there if you don't like being monitored. But it's like, I'm paying you a salary for your time. Yeah. And if you're not giving me the time that I'm paying you for, it's like, and I need to see that you're at, like, because you, you're not at the office, so I need to see, like, are you working? And it can't be just on job performance because you look at i mean the high pressures of the corporate world where it's like they want to know like hey you got your job done but can you do more can you do more can you do more like they push you to keep you at that constant level of like trying to get the most efficiency out of you yeah where somebody's not working and it's like well can we get more out of our employees and like how do we go about doing that and that's i think right now that's gonna be the next thing over the next 
three to five years of the employer employee battle of like hey we got options to go work somewhere else but the employee is like but i'm trying to keep my workforce but i need to track their ability to perform for my bottom line like how is that gonna shape well there was uh uh like another because i kind of went down the rabbit hole of all this and there was another article showing how so many of the people that are working from home are it it was and there were large percentages i mean most of them were like over 30 percent uh, of the people polled uh, had this so a lot of them were working two jobs on pay of one job right so during the time that they were being paid for one job to be there and double be dipping good, on they're they're also doing another job simultaneously another one uh other people were having sex more they were drinking while they were working they were taking naps uh, you know, because it's like, yeah, they send you a message or something. You didn't answer. It's like, oh, I didn't see it. Oh, I was busy. Uh, uh you know, it didn't pop up. Oh, I don't know. My computer froze. a million things. And it's oh, like, so many, it's like, how can they tell, Yeah. you know, how can they, so then as the manager, you're like, shit, you know what I mean? And you don't want to assume the worst in people, but at the end of the day, it's like, well, what the hell else do you assume? Well, it's kind of the thing where like you're going to get like 10% bad actors that ruin it for the other 90% that do perform. Yeah, well, um, but this was a lot higher than 10%. Yeah, well, I'm sure because it is <laughs> like saying like, eh, it's three o'clock and uh, yeah, I'm still working. I'm going to pop a beer, have a glass of wine, whatever it may be for the next two hours. Because like it, it doesn't affect your, I mean, let's say it doesn't affect your performance. Like one beer, one glass of wine, no big deal. But it's like I'm sitting at home and there's like you said, I'm just, just drinking. Uh, just sitting there working, knocking things out. But it's just like, yeah, that's not quite uh, good office policy, I guess. Like, oh, our people are just getting hammered over here on a Tuesday afternoon. Like, eh. But I mean, I guess it depends on the industry. Yeah, I mean, in the con- not in the everything. Constru- not everything is a wholesale company. Well, and also, like, <laughs> I mean, that was pretty common in construction, though. It's like on Friday afternoons, like somebody, like there was always like somebody had like some whiskey or some beers or something but it was always like after work hours you just kind of have that commodity like when things are closing up shop to get together yeah when things are closing up yeah shop. but like here not at lunch i'm yeah. gonna have this on a tuesday so right? the the next second time bomb is two-tier class system it's natural that the people in the office will form close-knit bonds after all this is hopefully a once in a multi-generational event uh, the office may have a cel- celebratory feel to it. Uh, we are close to beating the pandemic. We're now entering a new and exciting era. There will be a sense of camaraderie and a spirit du corpus. Spirit du corpus. Yeah, I don't know what that one was. I was like, oh, I don't know. Uh, I think like community. I don't know. Whatever. Anyway. The remote, uh, the remote workers will start feeling left out. It's not likely that a group of coworkers who got together for a quick brainstorming session will stop everything and think of the folks who should also be included. Yep. In the office, people sick and tired of Zoom calls won't be too enthused to lose the momentum and try to find others who should be on the call. They'll just proceed without them and say they'll catch up uh, to speed later, which may may not happen. So again, you know, this is something that happens with us as well, where it's like we all of a sudden that like they talked about before, just uh, happen. We just happen to have a conversation, right? It just happened to form into something, and then it turns into like a small little brainstorming session of like, hey, we should do this, we should do that. Why don't we change this? And you know, just because. It happens. That's what yeah. it is when people are in close contact. That's the so, impromptu aspect of it that you just don't get digitally. To where, like, I mean, I had the converse or the topic on here last week with uh, 
Jamie Dimon and Chase saying like, I'm. Oh, kids. you spoke to Jamie? Yeah. How's he doing? Uh, he's, <laughs> he's doing all right. His knees are getting better. Uh, mm -hmm. Do you know he had like his, some serious health issues? I don't know how much of like a tank that man was. I wonder he if he had, has like, two knee replacements. He was in his office and all of a sudden like he heard a pop and like called his doctor and he's like, yeah, this is what I'm experiencing. I had to like. You need to go down, grab your assistant, get in the elevator, get in a car, and try to get here before you pass out. And he had like an aortic separation where like he would have bled to death in a matter of like an hour or two. My goodness. And like his, his he's like, yeah, I grabbed my assistant, walked the elevator, started getting super dizzy. And by the time I got to the car, I, I passed out in the car and I woke up out of surgery. Like by the time it popped, calling his doctor, he was in on the operating table in less than an hour and like he's like it saved his life because like he had some type of like, see now issue. what if like, that assistant was working from home <laughs> yeah that's it was working from home. he would have been, been asked out <laughs> yeah but he said like they're they've lost business they they there's so many things about that the banking business the investment making industry that it's like you can't do from home google's mentioned it that like that's the reason their their offices are the way they are because they want people spending more time at work enjoy being at work because they understand like the thing the creativeness of yeah. groups and what is that um the synergy or like the what is that and for like i don't know but like the the two parts are greater than the whole or something like that or like one plus one equals three instead of two that you have that back and forth when you have the group are you that, doing like, federal reserve math now exactly <laughs> but uh they see the the group the benefits of having people in the office and communicating having side conversations and that camaraderie like they mentioned that synergy that creates good business models that you just you can't get on a digital platform i mean even like zoom still doesn't do the as good a job as being in person yeah and i mean like even if you try to rely on text messages emails phone calls it's like being in person has technology has not yet been able to replicate until we get to like uh what was that Arnold Schwarzenegger movie where like you were like you sat down uh no it wasn't it was Bruce Willis or somebody but you like basically sat in a chair and your surrogate went out and interacted in the surrogate. world yeah was that what it was called I think so uh yeah it was something like that yeah. but it's like basically they haven't been able to come up with that where you just sit in a chair and then your mind and conscious walks off yeah. like have well, really heard of that. I, I think, you know, going back to that, like in, in our own personal space, uh, you know, we're implementing systems. We're doing things like sometimes these are new things, right? These are brand new things. So the people that are helping you implement it have a question. Well, now they got to message you. And let's say you stepped away from the computer. You didn't see the message. You come back, you get going with your stuff. Next thing you know, an hour went by, you just saw the message. During that hour, that person's been like, uh, do I keep going? Do I wait? I don't know what to do. Should I just do it? Like, damn. So we just killed an hour. We killed productivity. For what? You know what I mean? Like, you know, it seems here we have uh, Lorenzo. Uh, he put GPS is always on my laptop. We used to have cameras in our trucks. Can't even pick your nose in private. Big Brother is always watching us. So I don't know if uh, you. it seems like you have a problem with, you know, the monitoring aspect of it, but it just gets to a point where it's like, it, it, you got to look at it from the business owner's point of view too. It becomes really hard. I, I think there are jobs that, yes, you can do from home because they're, they're I guess they're more like task driven, where it's like, yeah, there's not much that you need to connect with somebody on, you need to have conversations about. It's just more like, almost like virtual errands, right? Mm -hmm. 
But when you're doing stuff that you're actually working and you're actually doing things in the business and everything, I think it, it really matters that you you are in the business. You are in the company and connecting with people. Yeah. So then they talk about the next thing was a growing resentment. As uh, remote workers start feeling left out, they'll lose motivation. Their boss may not know as they're not seeing the person every day. Of course, on the video calls, the person puts on a happy persona and the boss is not uh, is none the wiser. The work from home, uh, the work from homers may have lots of lots lost. Oh yes, that's why it wasn't making sense. May have lost out on juicy juicy assignments as they're out of sight, out of mind. They'll feel that they're always the last to know some important piece of news and information. After numerous perceived instances of neglect, they'll start a job research. Job At, search, not a job research. We'll yeah. start a job search. My eyesight is <laughs> too many these words. I need to zoom them in. Uh, <laughs> but they'll start a job search at home. It's easier a search of a job boards on different computers that's not monitor. Networking with recruiters, former coworkers, and others will consume a large part of the day. So that growing resentment, right? That growing of like being neglected, being ignored, being pushed aside for whatever reason, because it's that out of sight, out of mind. Or sometimes it's just a, that tediousness of like, again, when we were talking about earlier, you and I start talking about something, then it's like the plans come in place, everything goes good. And then it's like, uh, now I got to go connect and relay the whole freaking conversation all over again to this person. Right. And I'm sure this person's going to have feedback. So, now they have feedback, but then you're no longer in the room because you had to go do something else. So it's like, I would give them my side, but not your side. And it's like, it becomes so much more cumbersome to, to have those situations, especially when you're in a growing company. I think if you're more of a stable company that the, the positions are very detailed and clear and everything, and it's pretty much the same repetitive task every single day, that's one thing. But when you're in a growing, scaling company, it's like, things are changing consistently. You know, on a continuous basis, they're changing. So it's like, it matters. But, um, but yeah, they're saying growing resentment is another one of the issues. And then, uh, then becomes, after all that, becomes pay issues is another time bomb. So another potential uh, contentious issue is compensation. Some companies have said they'll pay a person who works remotely in North Dakota the same as a person who is in the headquarters in Silicon Valley. The cost of living and taxes between the two locations is enormous. The San, the San Francisco person may be jealous and angry that he needs to pay a small fortune for a tiny apartment or house, whereas his North Dakota colleague is residing in a huge house with low taxes. You can imagine how frustrating a New Englander would feel in a freezing winter while their counterpart is living life on a sunny island in the Bahamas. <laughs> As the companies uh, start recruiting talent across, uh, across the country and perhaps the world, it would spook off in-office and at-home workers. They'll worry that the company will purposely seek out applicants from lower-cost locations to save money and put downward pressure on overall compensation. They'll be afraid to ask for a raise when they know that they could be replaced with someone earning substantially less money. Oh, sounds like capitalism. And and we've I mean we've already seen this with VAs, right? You have your virtual assistants. That's nothing new. 
uh, whether they're from the Philippines, India, wherever the hell they are, they're substantially cheaper, right? Because over there, $5 an hour goes a long way, right? Over here, that same job probably is more closer to the $25, $30 an hour. So it makes a huge difference when the performance is the same. So when you're saying, you know, I'm an assistant or I do this role, I do that role. And it's like, there are VAs that can do the same role and perhaps even do the same quality. And they're willing to work overnight because that's your, you know, your work hours in the States. It, yeah, it makes it kind of hard for you to, you know, hold your ground on, on a raise or something like that. And, that. and when we go back to real estate, how it's local... That's where affordability comes in. If you can work from home and the, whatever the model of the company is and you can work from home, now you can move to wherever you want that's more affordable to live and still get paid like if you lived in Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. You know, so I, I think, yeah, I mean, that, that's, a, that's a real issue in a lot of areas. I, what do you think about that? Um, <laughs> it's very interesting. Like I said, over the next three to five years, it's going to be interesting to see to where like, I think a lot of these high-priced areas are going to run into these issues where it's like, yeah. hey, a uh, company's job is to cut costs and grow revenue. I mean, that is the job of a company. Or it's like, where is your biggest cost in the company is the cost of your labor. Or like, hey, I got somebody willing, like, we don't need somebody living here in San Francisco. Uh, I can hire somebody living in North Texas for 20, 30 grand less, 40 grand less a year. They're living the same lifestyle. It's like, I, I don't need you. Or it's like, as an employer, look at it, you feel for it. It's like, sorry, I, or, I just don't need it. Now, or, I'm curious, like you say, they're, they're making 20 grand less. That may not necessarily be the case. It may be that you're probably paying the same, but now you think that you're probably going to get higher quality of worker because let's say in, in uh, Silicon Valley, right, you're getting paid 60 grand a year. Let's say, I don't know if. I don't know you if know, you can live in, that's, that's but, poverty in Silicon Valley. <laughs> right. So all right, let's call it a hundred grand. I don't know. We'll throw a number. Let's call it a hundred grand. But a hundred grand job in that area is going to get you mediocre employee, right? Because you need a lot more to live in that area. Mm -hmm. So the people that have the talent that you need want closer to maybe 150, right? To, to work there. But a hundred thousand dollar employee in San Antonio or other cities Probably now you get the same quality that you would over here for 150, but you're getting them for 100 now. So it's not necessarily that you're paying less, but you're getting better quality employed. Do you? I, that's just a theory of mine. But like, do you oh, think I, that makes I, sense? Yes, it makes complete sense. And you see these areas and these things happening to where like people are moving around. If they have, we just uh, we just represented somebody that left Southern California to live in Texas and get significantly better. Uh, a house quality lifestyle and everything because they can work remotely yeah. or it's like, what does that do to an area that is ridiculously high in prices when people can leave, they can move outside, they can work. I mean, I think it's going to spread out, uh, costs. So you're not going to have these massive, like expensive pockets, uh, or the industry is going to change the type of jobs that go there are going to change and things are going to move around. So yeah, I think that makes complete sense of like the quality you get. Uh, cause I mean, we talked about it where, who was it that, Stripe said, "Hey, you, we're going to pay you a one-time twenty thousand. Was it they were going to pay them yeah, 20, twenty grand? grand. But they were going to get also price uh, salary reduction. But when you looked at the cost of living adjustment basis, like it's forty percent higher to live in that area than 
a lot of other really nice metros. Yeah. And like, okay, you get 20 grand to move, but your salary drops 10 grand, 15 grand. It's like, well, your cost of the UK, you've got a 10% price reduction, but a 40% jump in or 40% reduction in cost of living. So it's like, you still gain 20 grand plus a 30% of your dollar going further. Yeah. So like, yeah, no, it, it really does make a difference. Um, and but I was reading some of the comments here, and we have Master Jedi that he says, instead of micromanaging and monitoring, hire better employees with work ethic. Um, and then he says, brainstorming in person, i.e., side convos, are critical in growing companies. So yes, uh, it it is. You should be hiring better employees with work ethic and all that. But sometimes, you know. How do you tell, right? You're hiring, and that I think that's where the concept comes of uh, hire fast, uh, hire slow, fire fast. Yeah. Um, but sometimes I, I think it might be difficult to tell, like what their work ethic is, especially like, what if you hired somebody pre-pandemic, right? Now all of a sudden you they've gotten used to working from home, their habits have changed because this has changed a lot of people. Like you want to think that you're, you know, the best person or whatever but it's like it's changed a lot of people the way they act their habits and stuff like that where it's like now you got to deal with that new person pretty much that you hired before they were a killer when they were in the office but now that they have this work from home hybrid all of a sudden you start seeing a different side you know what i mean that was developed during the the uh, the shutdown during the stay at home orders yeah so i think it's uh it does make it harder not again i'm not saying all jobs need to be uh a hybrid or even you got to come into the office but there are certain jobs that it does require that camaraderie that you know that connection that in office appearance yeah it's gonna be very interesting to see how everything's adjust because i mean i do agree there are going to be some jobs that's like hey you 100 percent, you don't need to be micromanaged and you get your job done but then you're gonna have those other parts of like the business that's like no we need you here but like how do you tie those new reports those new way to do business new a lot of new things that are going to come about from this last year as things start readjusting and moving things around. And it is kind of one of the things that is good for an economy to have these shakeups every now and that say, Hey, uh, everything got entrenched doing the old ways. And now the old way has completely been severed and broken. And now new things have to form and the smaller, nimbler companies can adjust to those faster than the big boys. And, and what I look at is I used to, I've always said this, that this is one of the biggest downfalls that, wholesalers or real estate investors have, especially when they say, hey, I'm going all in on real estate. I'm quitting my job. Doing, I'm being a full-time real estate investor. And they work from home. I always see is that you're working from home. You have distractions, right? Even, even if you, you know, even your home is quiet. It's your home. It's a different mindset that you have when you're there, right? You have your TVs right there. Maybe this is right. Maybe you can do this errand real quick or do that thing real quick that you wouldn't do if you were working. Mm -hmm. So now your focus is being pulled in different directions. And then the discipline that you got to have to stay on task and to have all these distractions that, that is your home around you and still be able to focus, Like I think that kind of discipline not many people have. Which is why so many wholesalers and investors that they decide to go full time struggle so much because their work efficiency goes way to hell down, right? Where we've had it with people, we have somebody right now that he's essentially officing out of here, right? Because he wants that camaraderie of being in a, with, with people because he's like, if I'm home, I do less. You know, our videographer and our editor, uh, Dre, there's a lot of times that he'll go to a coffee house. 
He'll go somewhere to get out. And his house is quiet. It's not like yeah. you're saying, oh, his house is full of kids. No. But he'll go because that's the change of scenery. Yeah. And just being around people, like you need that. Right. So it really affects and it really matters. So then you have managers' misconceptions is the final bomb that employees may notice a cold aloofness as the as their direct manager gets irritated that they don't know what the underlying underlining is doing all day long. And there's the belief that showing up to work, having good attendance, and putting in long hours is more important than results. Studies have shown that remote workers receive fewer promotions and lower bonuses compared to in-office peers. How do they know that after only been doing it really a year? I well, guess. remote workers. Remote workers is nothing yeah. new. Um, it's just tremendously increased. But sick days, days off, and vacations will be met with questions as the old office mindset will think, you've been home for over a year. Why do you need the time off? <laughs> that, it's just funny because I, I, I think about that too when I hear like uh, after last year when everybody was home and the people that we knew were home and then all of a sudden they're like, oh, finally, you know, we get a uh, winter break or something. I'm like, you've had a whole year break. <laughs> what yeah. the hell you want winter break for? But, uh, and then they say major companies such as uh, search sites, Yahoo and tech stalwart, stalwart? IBM, experimented with remote options only to realize that the project and scuttle the project and told people to return to the office and i didn't know what the fuck that word was um <laughs> i noticed I was like, and, and told people to return to the office right so ibm and yahoo you know not small companies they're established do, you know they're established they're they've been in this quite a bit uh, a bit so they even said like that's it you got to come back to the office. And we and this is not the first time we've heard it. We've heard it from major companies throughout the weeks of like, no, nah, people need to come back to the office. Performances are going down, like uh, employee morale is going down, like things are becoming more stressful. Like there's just, and it could be something that's just going to take a little bit longer to adapt to, you know? And that's something that we had a conversation this week in our company that's like, all right, we are having issues with this work from home model. But what does that mean? What what are the issues? And pretty much 95% of the issues came down to communication. Yeah. It's difficult to communicate right now. And not necessarily because it's difficult to communicate, but for us, that this is not a common practice. It, we don't know the, the most efficient or the best way to communicate with somebody that's working from home on things that are getting done on a daily basis, you know, and are changing on a daily basis. It makes it very hard to have those conversations. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, communication is like, and how do you solve that to us? It's like, well, you got to come into the office. You know, that's, that's pretty much how that gets solved. So that was, that was the whole article that I had on that. Uh, I hope you guys found it uh, helpful. You know, it's an it's a interesting perspective for those of you that have jobs, for those of you that are business owner and you're thinking about, you know, what am I going to do with employees? These are some things to keep in mind as you're hiring people. And then for real estate investors, it's like it's based on the local market, right? So if you see that you're in a very affordable city, chances are if the you know i don't think this hybrid work model is going away anytime soon i think it, it's only going to get bigger it just needs to get refined and tweaked and perfected people are going to be more likely to move to more affordable cities that are still nice 
and still work somewhere where they're getting paid like they live there. You know what I mean? And now they're able to live a much stress-free lifestyle because it's like, well, look at this. You know, now I have yeah. more money left over. Oh, the traffic. So, they ask me, there's a lot. Yeah. So any topics that you want to jump to? Because if... Uh, I was going to jump into McDonald's. Yeah, go to McDonald's. That's the one I was thinking. I was kind of, uh, when you sent me that, I was like, oh man. So, for those of you that may not have heard, a McDonald's location has gotten so desperate for staff that it is offering a free iPhone to new workers. <laughs> and I love how it starts off. Would you like fries with that? How about a free iPhone? <laughs> so, in an attempt to recruit and maintain new workers in a post pandemic landscape, one McDonald's location is hoping to attract potential employees with quite the techno technological sound offer. In a viral tweet that has now generated over 200,000 likes, uh, blah, 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 head scratch inside, uh, outside of McDonald's, he posted the picture and the sign of the McDonald's sign says, not hiring, free iPhone. Now uh, hiring. Not, not hiring. I said now. You said not hiring. Well, <laughs> now hiring free iPhone. Okay. Yeah. Now hiring free iPhone. Uh, after six months employment and meet employment criteria. So you're not getting an iPhone off the bat. You got to work for six months and meet the criteria. They will give you a free iPhone. So they could just, and somebody came out and said, they could just offer livable wage instead of this theatrics. So... We talked about this, and and I, I I really want somebody to let me know. So even if you're seeing a clip of this on TikTok or somewhere, I want you to comment below. Like, why would you expect a livable wage working at McDonald's? I don't understand that. McDonald's was never designed to be a livable wage job. It was a stepping stone. You yeah. understand? Like, that's since I was a kid, McDonald's was always full of 15 and 16 year olds. You understand? It's like, it's kids, always. It's a stepping stone. It's like the first job anybody can qualify for. Yeah. Why do you want a livable wage out of there? I don't know. I don't, I don't understand it. I, I would love to have a conversation. I'm not criticizing. I'm not, you know, saying anything bad about the people. I'm just saying, like, it just, to me, it doesn't make sense. So this month, employees across 15 major cities in the U.S. stage a strike at selected McDonald's locations to fight the raising uh, for raising the minimum wage to $15. After learning that the fast food Titan made $5 billion in profit last year. So it shows that McDonald's made $5 billion last year and they won the minimum wage raise to $15. The company announced that it would begin to raise pay on an average of 10% for coworkers over the rest of the year, estimating that the average wage for company-owned restaurants employees would reach $15 per hour by 2024. Uh, however, this does not include employees who work in franchisee-owned restaurants, which account for a whopping 95% of McDonald's. So... <laughs> yeah, our 5% of uh, McDonald's we control, we're going to start raising those wages. Yeah. But, but it's also like, yeah, it's a franchisee model to where it's like, do they... Like, what is that going to do to their business model saying like, oh, you have to pay $15 an hour? Um, well, it, th so this is where I think it's going to hit them. So you have many fast food restaurants like Wendy's and IHOP that have been doubling down on digital models and promotions that encourage customers to order online or through an app 
decentralizing the typical model of one-on-one customer-to-employee interaction. McDonald's has said said it's looking to hire 10,000 new employees across its company-owned restaurants in the next three months. So my thing is this, right? Like you see, you hear this and you hear Wendy's and IHOP doing that and we've seen it with even more places. McDonald's is going to have to do something, right? If, If they raise their wages more then they're going to have to raise the food cost, right? Because it's it just uh, they won't be able to absorb that hit, right? But even though they save $5 billion in profit, what does that look like? Because uh, people think, oh, $5 billion, you just put it right in your pocket. Not always. It, it could be, you know, money that's rolling over to the following year. It could be a million things, you know? It's just the yeah. way that with taxes played out, that's what showed up as profit. For us, every year we show up like a certain amount of profit, and it's like, that's not in our pocket, yeah. <laughs> you know? But that's how businesses work. But taking that into account, if you have Wendy's, IHOP, all these other companies that are going to start pretty much getting rid of employees, right? Automating as much of it as they can so they can keep competing at a low price, what the hell is McDonald's going to do? I mean, do you ever see a McDonald's going out of business? I mean, anything can go out of business, but it's also one of the things that it's not it's like, well, Amazon did it. It's like, yeah, Amazon doesn't have competition. It, there's nobody that can exactly. compete with Amazon that's like, well, we're going to go to $17 an hour because it's like, who else is going to come out with that kind of infrastructure to compete with that? We're like, fast food restaurants, food choices, you have a lot of options. You have a lot of choices to where it's like, they have to keep, there's a lot of competition to where it's like, they have to do every, anything and everything they can to try to keep costs low to where it's like, all right, they say we're even a dollar. Yeah. How many employees does, does Amazon or not McDonald's have across the entire nation says, nope, we need to give a dollar raise to everybody across the board. Like, what does that do? And a lot of them, they're franchise models. They're individual people that own these where they only own 5%. And they take a piece of 95%. Right. Or it's like they know like if I raise those wages, it's going to be very hard. Like they restaurants don't operate on massive margins. So where like you take that massive hit going from 7, 10, whatever it may be to state areas and say, no, everybody has to go to $15 an hour. Like that is going to be very interesting. I mean, it would hurt the business model drastically and we could really shake things up across a lot of them to where like, they have to constantly be seeing what Burger King or IHOP or McDonald or Wendy's, like all these other fast food places are doing to combat, not even combat. It's just like work these issues out because obviously they want to pay more wages, but they also have to watch their bottom line too. It's like, they can't get beat out by the competition. Their business has to survive. Yeah. Like they have to answer to somebody door. Like says, Oh, they should go out of business. Like how many pensions funds on mcdonald's how many like how much money is being in the financial industry of retirees that are you can't just like say i want this fortune 500 company i mean they're probably fortune 50 i'd imagine uh going out of business because like that would hurt all the way across the entire market oh i'm trying to do some quick research to see if i can uh pinpoint it Uh, so far what i'm seeing is walmart has a market value of 93 billion dollars Amazon has a market value of 1.76 trillion. So 93 billion to 1.7 trillion, right? Amazon started way after Walmart. Mm-hmm. Walmart is I, my thought is like they're the closest competitor Amazon has. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like that's that's pretty much and Walmart's tried the, you know, two-day free shipping and all the stuff, yet Nobody really uses it as much as you use Amazon, right? You go to Amazon first. 
always go to Amazon first. So you're looking at all this and you're saying, and yet Amazon is doing exactly that. They're, they're being more competitive. They're offering higher wages. They're offering better benefits. They're offering schooling, right? Don't they offer like for you to learn certain trades and stuff like that? Like didn't your brother learn like HVAC or something like that, right? So that's innovative. McDonald's has Wendy's, Burger King, Arby's. I mean, whether you like them or not, whatever, it's not the point. But the competitors are there. Whataburger in Texas, lots, right? Lots the competitors are there. So it's like, what are you going to do? The only thing that makes sense is not to pay your employees more, is to actually get rid of more employees and automate as much as you can. That's pretty much the best answer of fast food places because if not, they they become ridiculously expensive. Well, I mean, you, we just, have, well, you just compare Amazon to Walmart. Like Walmart's a retail or like the efficiencies of Amazon. Amazon started innovating as far as like getting employees and putting people or automating and getting machines to do as much work as possible. You walk inside one of those warehouses and it's like the automation they have with those little, those warehouses that it's like, they're football size yeah. fields of just products. And you got robots running around where Walmart had to have trucks drive to a warehouse, drive the warehouse, drive to the distributor, people unload it and people physically goes pack all their stores. Yeah. So or like, you just look at like, what's the market paying for now? 1.7 trillion versus 93 billion. It's like that. I mean, given Amazon owns all kinds of other stuff too, that attributes to that. But it's also like, they're able to distribute so many more products and expand so much faster than what Walmart can today because yeah. Am Walmart depended on physical retail stores and locations yep which is just crazy to see that's like those two juggernauts of like walmart's not small i mean but you just look at the market cap sizes of them and it's like man they're really gonna be going head to head it's like can they but who's gonna win that like uh the tail of the take of the two um battle of the titans battle of the titans i guess you can look at you got the new hip fit guy going against the the old school entrenched like strong company of walmart uh, like what do they do i mean we can always use the same example of netflix and blockbuster you know blockbuster was a freaking juggernaut netflix came put them out of business they yeah. would not adapt you know what i mean they did not want to change anything well, i mean look at sears too like sears yeah sears kmart walmart like those were all big like retailers of like the um, 70s 80s and 90s and then the tech came along and like sears went out of business kmart i don't know if it still exists uh i haven't seen one in forever to where like those big box retailers don't exist anymore walmart's been able to hold on and really kind of keep things going for a while and be able to shift just because their capitalization the way they've invested, but can they keep going forever? So as we talk about these juggernauts and all this, I want to hear this article that you have. Amazon did something. What did they Amazon do? Amazon. What are you doing? Well, it's one of the things also Amazon, it's like they're 1.7, why are they worth 1.7 trillion is because like looking at like Walmart, we talk about like they're in the business of selling products. And that's really about it. Amazon's got their streaming service, their cloud service, their all the different businesses that they own for all different types of things. I mean, they got the products, the Alexas, the um, the Fire Sticks, the all the stuff they go on. So a very diversified uh, product line where it's like, man, is there anything Amazon doesn't do? And now Amazon buys MGM Studios for eight point or Amazon to buy MGM Studios for eight point four five billion. The funny thing was, like their stock when they announced it didn't even move. 
It's like oh, Amazon stock. Yeah. They're like, man, makes sense. Like usually when you had like companies make these big mergers, stock prices would start fluctuating rapidly. Like there's moved less than like a percent when the, it was announced. That's so already kind of like bit into their stock price. But Amazon said Wednesday it will acquire MGM studios for 8.45 billion, making its boldest move yet into the entertainment industry and turbocharging its streaming ambitions. The deal is the second largest acquisition in Amazon history behind the 13.7 billion purchase of Whole Foods in 2017. The real financial value behind this deal is the treasure trove of intellectual property in the deep catalog that will plan to reimagine and develop together with MGM's talented team. Amazon has been willing to make big investments on video content as a strategy to buoy prime memberships, which now surpasses 200 million globally. Oh. It spent 11 billion on video and music content last year, up from 7.8 billion in 2019, 2019. CEO Jeff Bezos has argued that these investments reinforce Amazon's flywheel effect in which it attracts more prime subscribers who in turn tend to spend more on their site. And my question with that is at what point does Amazon become too big and have too much power across too many industries? Oh, we're past that point. I don't think that it's at what point. I think Amazon is is a, a titan within its rights where it's like you can't touch Amazon. Like the amount of people they employ, the amount of services they provide, the amount of uh you know, tentacles they got into all of the economy, everything. It's like yeah, Amazon is here to stay, not for now, but it's going to be the, I think it's like slowly, it'll probably end up absorbing Walmart. You know what I mean? Because I think Walmart won't be able to keep up anymore because it'll just be too easy to be an Amazon Prime member and just do all your shopping at Amazon because they, they bought Whole Foods, right? Uh, last year, the year before, whatever, they bought Whole Foods. So, and I believe they had bought them for what, like 13 Billion? 17 billion. Uh, yeah, well, I just said it in the article. What was it? You said it? Yeah, it's in the article. They 13.7. Okay, so they bought them for $13 billion, right? Whole Foods. They just bought MGM for $8 billion. So you control food. You control now entertainment, streaming. They're, they're bringing on, I uh, believe the biggest things are going to be like the James Bonds, Rocky. You're bringing on big series, right? Things that so that's what MGM made the, that's creates what made a lot the deal of deal so juicy was the I, the intellectual property that MGM owns. And I didn't right. copy that portion, but they said like some 17,000 titles or something like they're, that. They already have rights to uh, NFL games, yeah, right? So Basketball 2022, games. They have the exclusive rights for Thursday night football. So you're looking at all that and it's like, what area of your life does Amazon not control or not have their hands in? So since you yeah. believe that monopolies are good for economies, do you think this is good for an overall economy? I never one said company? monopolies are good for economy. <laughs> I said over government regulation isn't good for economy. You know what so I mean? That this, does this start, do you think Amazon's going to start really infringing on, because it's, they've been in the news and the next article is about antitrust laws. Uh, do you think Amazon is going, does need to tread carefully as far as how far they try to spread you know, with the risk of being broken up? I believe again, uh, wholeheartedly is the free market is always going to do what's what they need to do right they're always going to do what's right and even amazon they haven't gotten this big by being stupid right they control so much yet they're still raising their wages they're still giving more benefits to their employees they're still doing better services at cheaper prices you know what i mean that it's like they're not right now 
they haven't shown that they have any malicious intent or anything to do something bad. Do they? The next article says that they do. Oh, okay. So let's get into it. But so, saying like you're saying they don't show to do yeah, anything yeah. bad. I was like, well, the DC Attorney General sues Amazon on antitrust grounds, alleges it illegally raises prices. Illegally raises prices. So the Washington DC Attorney General General. Carl Rassen announced Tuesday he's suing Amazon on antitrust grounds, alleging the company practices have unfairly raised prices for consumers and suppressed innovation. Rassen is seeking to end what he alleges Amazon's illegal use of price agreements to edge out competition. The suit asked the court to stop what it calls Amazon's ability to harm competition through a variety of remedies as needed, which could include structural relief, often referred to as a form of breakup. The lawsuit filed in D.C. Superior Court alleges Amazon illegally maintained monopoly powers by using contract provisions to prevent third-party sellers on its platform from offering their products at lower prices on other platforms. Until 2019, Amazon included a clause in that, doc in that document referred to as a price parity provision, which prohibited sellers from offering their products on a competitor's online marketplace at a lower price than what other products would have sold for Amazon. Amazon quickly removed that provision in March 2019 amid growing antitrust scrutiny. According to the complaint, even after Amazon removed its price parity provision for its agreements with third-party sellers, it added a newly, nearly identical clause referring to it as a fair pricing policy. The fair pricing policy enables Amazon to impose sanctions on a seller that offers their products for a lower price on a comp competing online marketplace. Thoughts? Basically, they said, oh, shit, that is kind of a antitrust aspect. We probably should do it. So let's take that out and put this other one worded differently because, like, when you dealt with as much of attorneys as I have, we have, or talked to, it's like words mean certain things and worded a certain way. Yeah. To where that one attorney's like, this means the exact same. When I look at it, it's like you can impose sanctions on somebody if they offer you the same their product on a different platform for a lower price. How is that not the same of saying you can't offer this product at a lower price on their platform? It's like, yeah, I get it. It's like, well, they still can. We just can impose sanctions. So you're making them not their product. They're basically saying you only have Amazon. If you because try to do business they, over here. Of course, they want exclusivity, yeah. right? You're not being forced to put it on Amazon. Yeah, no, I get it. But you, it's you like, could spend the extra money and create your own marketing funnel and create your own Shopify store and create all of that yeah. to bring traffic to your site and you sell whatever price you want. Yeah. You want to tap into mar uh, the marketing Amazon has. You want to tap into their platform. You want to tap into all this stuff. They want exclusivity, right? Yeah. Because then it's like, oh, we're going to bring all this awareness to you and then you're going to offer it cheaper in your websites. Like, uh, uh, you know. Yeah, but I said like it with when Amazon grows as large as Amazon's gotten, yeah, you suppress any form of competition with that. Like it makes sense. I get it for like a small like I want exclusivity to work with you because I'm doing all this work over here. Right. But when you control over fifty percent of the market or something like that, now the, what those rules that made sense when you were smaller, yeah. now it's like well now those rules are actually hurting businesses and hurting competition and allowing you this monopolistic style of position yeah, but then in the market you have other where i keep going back to the free market right then you have other massive companies like facebook continuing to build up 
their store place, right? Facebook has pretty much been developing like you have the marketplace, but they're developing more of like a store, kind of like an Amazon model where not everything needs to be local anymore. You can find local stuff that somebody's reselling, but you can also find brand new stuff that somebody's selling and shipping just like you would anywhere else, right? So Facebook is now getting into that space as well. They're seeing what Amazon's doing and everything. And if Amazon gets too out of control, Facebook is going to be like, well, then come list with us. We have the traffic. We have the billions of people. You know, we'll put your products in front of everybody. We have the marketing. Amazon yeah, would be interesting would, to see how that works because like, I get on any kind of Facebook marketplace and it's trash stuff that happens on there. And like, it's just a because pain. Because it's, it's like everything, right? It's, it's forming. It's, it's yeah. all this shit. But regardless, it's, it's going in that direction. Yeah. And that's where I go back to regulations. My issues with regulation, again, it's not that the intent is bad. The issue is that the regulation comes out. Let's say it, it, it fixes this, but then it creates 10 other problems for everybody else. Unintended consequences that every regulation has. And now that regulation is in place. Now they got to get another regulation to regulate the first regulation. And then another yeah. one to regulate. You, you get what I'm saying? Where it gets to a point where it's like, that I think stifles innovation and growth much more than Amazon trying something and then getting smacked by somebody else, you know, and having to modify because then the people don't like it and then the people start shying away and then the people start going somewhere else, right? Or marketing gets more creative so you don't have to go to Amazon because, well, if I search, you know, I'm going to find these people and yeah. they offer. So it, it, I think this kind of stuff creates even more uh, competition and innovation because it forces people to be like, screw you, Amazon. We're not doing that shit. We'll figure it out some other way. You understand? And they will. I mean, you look at Facebook, like you said, Facebook, oh, they're controlling everything. TikTok came out. They're crushing it. You know, Facebook came out with reels to compete. It's not doing as well as TikTok is. TikTok is still crushing it and mm -hmm. it keeps growing. You understand? So it's like, it only created, a, you know, yes, it stifled some half-brained half innovation, but some really good innovation like TikTok was, it didn't stop it. It couldn't stop it. Yeah. You know what I mean? So that's, that's kind of my argument, again, I guess, uh, against that kind of government regulation and all that. It's like it's always, it always well, goes too much. And, it, I agree. It does go too far, but it's also one of the things like as Amazon grows, it's like mm. as a company grows, like those are real issues and if you keep pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing eventually yes you are going to get infringed on antitrust laws and you are going to get broken up to where you have to realize like you can grow but you got to be careful of what policies you do put in place from when you started to where you are now to where like these issues to where like amazon now says you can't sell at another place or we've imposed sanctions on you and it's like well now you are stifling innovation so it's like well maybe you should modify your policies to where you don't have these kind of issues where the uh attorney general of washington dc sues you for antitrust laws it's like man you you gotta play that ground as you grow to get well, a certain size let's and scale. look at that too the attorney general of washington dc does he know anything about business you know what I mean? Like, does he know how the economy works? Because they say well, they, throw, a, they throw the stifle innovation out so quickly. And it's like, do you actually have any data backing that up that it is actually stifling innovation? Like, do you have any actual data to well, show yeah, that? Of course you do. 
You just look through history. Like you look at eighteen T, you look at uh, Standard Oil, you look across the history of the companies that have gone broken up. That it was good for the economy once those companies were broken up. You're using a handful of companies versus like all the companies in history. Well, that's what I said. It, it, they're like you look based at what was that. it? I think it's I don't know if it's Procter and Gamble or somebody like that. That when you actually look behind the curtain, they own like all of the major food brands that you ever consumed everywhere. Yeah. They own like that's a true monopoly in the whole food industry, control everything. Nobody's bitching about that. Yeah. Right? So this is nothing new, and nobody's broken them up. They're still getting bigger and acquiring more. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, and it still hasn't stifled innovation. You you have the organic well, that's side. What I said, you have all this other obviously side. Obviously, they haven't put policies in place that infringe on, tip, on the line of government regulation and uh, antitrust laws. Or it's like you got to tread he's carefully. He's saying they are. Just just because well, Amazon the, is the, saying you can't resell on your site for a higher price, they're not saying you can't resell on your site. They're saying you can't resell on your site for a higher price. In lower the sense, price. For, yeah, for a, a, a lower price. So where you're competing with the price on Amazon. That's like, well, then why would you? Why would you do that? Why not? You know, why? If you're pricing it, yes, I know you're going to get more money because you're doing that. Yeah. But build a brand on Amazon, then pull it off Amazon. You know, you pull it off of Amazon, you do, you build, like, I bought products on Amazon, and then they, when, when I get the product or whatever, or I get whatever I buy, it comes with, like, hey, for, for some free shit, go to my website, sign up to, they captured me now. They have my information. Well, I, they have I, I, everything. I understand 100%, so, but that's also one of the I things. I think like, this is just bitching and moaning that I don't feel like it has any base, because it's like, oh, they're stopping, the, and innovate. Stop bitching, because, you know, oh, they made everything easy. And they want to make more money. No, that's screwed up. Don't use them. Yeah. Well, oh, that's, well, that, like, that's just it, mean. It, it, and okay. that's the thing. It's like, you got to be careful as a company, as you're growing, the policies you put in place. As like, if Amazon took that out, would their business really be affected that much? Highly doubt it. Because Amazon is as big as they are. Or it's just like, hey, you got to understand, I think as you grow, it's like, you, there is a government regulation out there and it's there for a purpose. And it's like, you got to make sure you don't become the target of something like that. And this isn't new. Amazon's been in the, the limelight or all tech companies have been in the limelight for quite some time now of some of the stuff that uh, they've been pulling recently that, Hey, antitrust is coming to where like the big run up of the stock markets capitalized these so few tech companies so well that they've diversified into every other part of the economy under their umbrella to where it's like Procter and Gamble. Okay, they own food. Oh, they, they own, they own, they own other but consumer they own a lot of consumer products, a lot of consumer brands and things like that. Where like tech is not or a big tech is now involved in cars, it's in studios, it's in distribution, it's in space exploration. I, I get it. Or like I, that's where you say you gotta be careful on how far you tread. Like I get it's the job of a company to expand, look, but innovation, you're gonna get innovation isn't always a home run. You understand? Like sometimes you're gonna innovate and it's gonna pan out terribly. Like that freaking SUV that Tesla tried to come out with the that futuristic freaking Cybertruck? Yeah, that nasty thing. Didn't it still come I thought it wasn't even supposed to come out yet. Like oh, I don't know, but that's what I'm saying. Like sometimes you're innovating, you know, and it looks like a turd. Yeah. Right? But not everything's gonna be a home run and you try it and then but like my thing is like to criminalize somebody so quickly without giving them a chance to like one to not given a chance to really see does it produce that kind of effect or is it producing a different kind of effect? Like I said, they they don't allow you to uh, lower your prices on your website. 
Okay, cool. Even if you price it at the same price, you're still making more on your website because you're selling it at the same price of Amazon, but you're keeping more. You're keeping on the whole money, right? Or you innovate. So now when you sell your package, give them a little bump up just to sign up to your website well, to do all said, this. It's the point they're being sued for this. It doesn't mean that they, and that's to said, in the court of law, you have to prove that they are illegally doing this that it actually is hurting you have to make a case for it yeah, and yeah. so it's like they're being sued your, for it yeah. so it's like it's not me like that and that's a great thing about our system is like somebody like government can come in and sue the private sector for these issues but now we have a complete different system our judicial system that comes in and regulates between that we know and, what the pain in the ass is of being sued even if you're right yeah, but I mean that that's that, just that, now you got to spend all this time all this effort all this money fighting what could be a fruitless lawsuit and it's like okay yeah you lost but i still wasted all this effort time and money fighting your dumb ass yeah you know what i mean where it's like can we use you know can we wait to have some actual evidence where this is where, well that's and what i'm said, not saying they, they don't you know yeah, that's what the point of it though is like there is one side that feels they're both sides feel they're right yeah. That's why the practices are in place. And now you have the system in there to prove who is right. And yeah. that's why you obviously, you can't just say you're doing this wrong. It's like they have court cases, they have evidence, they have other situations that show that for their case, it's like you are illegally hurting the private sector this way. And that is now the job of the judicial system to come out and say like, you are, or you aren't. Your honor is all hearsay. Bullshit. Contempt of court. Anyway. Uh, I don't know where that came from, but all right. I wanted to touch on this article real quick. Is uh, I was reading an article, Warren Buffett bets on modular construction. So the Oracle of Omaha is making a contrarian bet on modular construction. So MyTech, a Missouri construction company owned by Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway, is launching a new modular building venture the Wall Street Journal reported that a startup will partner with New York City-based firm Danny Foster and Architecture on this venture. The goal to build rooms for hotels and apartment buildings in factories before sending them off to construction sites to be stacked. MyTech plans to invest tens of millions of dollars into the initiative and hopes to start working on its first projects at the beginning of next year. This isn't the first time someone has tried to disrupt the prefab building business. Katera, a Silicon Valley startup with uh, SoftBank's backing, has been seeking to move more, more of its construction work to factories to reduce the middlemen. The company's projects, however, have suffered from delays and cost overruns. MyTech says that its model can avoid the the cost overruns and delays that have become associated with modular construction because it will ship manufactured building parts along with the instructions for the project as opposed to building entire rooms off-site. General contractors would then construct the rooms with instructions from MyTech. Recently, the prefab startups Vive and Factory OS have received funding from investors on the Tel, Tel Aviv stock market and it was market exchange and Google respectively. So they're pretty much becoming the Ikea of houses now. <laughs> I mean, they're going to ship you a house in a box and with a million parts and you got to piece it together now. But it's interesting because this is not the first time we've heard about it. We have a friend of ours, uh, Austin, that he's 
partnering with some people and doing pretty much the same thing. Uh, the difference with him is that he is building the whole room, the whole house in the warehouse and ships it out. And then you kind of like you do it like Legos and you stack it. You got to have the foundation and all those things poured and you stack it from there. So these guys are saying they're going to make it much more cost effective because they're going to prefab the whole house, but send it in pieces. So I imagine like the walls and everything is going to just... You know, exactly like IKEA furniture. It's all gonna come in a, you know, in a nice little package, and then you just gotta start piecing all the. Yeah, I was listening to this morning on Kathy Fedke. She did a, a little five-minute spiel on this as well, mm-hmm. uh, talking about that. And it's like they've been running into a lot of trouble with labor unions because you look at construction, construction, and like especially in the Northeast, from where your ads, like it's labor unions for sure. Any kind of mass production, it's labor unions for sure and to where like trying to create this model that you're going to distribute and disrupt across a nationwide like you every city every municipality every state like has its own codes that are all adhered to like you have this national building code but now you have all these small codes that can go further and beyond what the national code is towards like how are you going to be able to adhere to all of that from one central location so like you're talking millions of different hundreds of thousands of different codes that you'd have to build for certain areas and certain aspects to where it's like our you couldn't say we're going to build these homes in texas like well austin has different regulations in san antonio dallas has different the counties have different we're like how do you go about building in these different areas for all these different codes and these different regulations because just well, like we talked about like in the county yeah you can throw some up because there's nowhere near the inspection process than there is in the city to where like okay you can't build in the city so i think also that's why they're targeting hotels and apartment buildings because i think with like with the houses what what's the problem that we face right that we submit our plans everything is good everything yay we're good and then all of a sudden you know, you have a stupid neighbor that comes out and starts crying and then they're like, oh, you got to bring your roof height a little bit and you got to do this little bump out and you got to bring this in a little bit. So if you had the plans already being manufactured, now it's an issue because it's like, hey, this house is being manufactured at these specs. But now all of a sudden the specs have been changing because of the neighborhood. But I think when you're building a hotel or an apartment, that's not really the case. You know, I don't think you're going to have those kind of tweaks and those kind of issues that's like, I think once you get the go-ahead to build, that's why when we drive everywhere, why is it that we see these buildings go up so much faster than any of our houses? You know what I mean? And they're building a massive building, and it's like, boom, you know? And you're talking about, like, from stick frame all the way to, like, it's being leased, right? It's moved in ready, everything's to go. And you're saying they had to have inspection periods. They've had to have... Yeah, but it's different for them than it is for a single-family home. So I think... That's maybe how they're battling that. That I think the regulations and everything for a hotel, for an apartment complex, uh, in apartment buildings is perhaps not the same thing that we are having to deal with in the residential space. And that that was just something that, you know, with our buddy that he's doing this, like I was actually thinking about, I was like, how's that going to work? Because we've had it even like mid project, like we have stick frame, everything. And all of a sudden they start changing their mind on the damn windows. And it's like, well, if we hired this person, you know, this company to pre-build the house and the house is pre-built and we're putting it together. Now they give us a problem with the windows and we got to change the shit. It's like, damn, now this became a real issue because this house, all everything was already framed to go together. Now we got to start breaking that up to modify it. You know what I mean? So yeah, I think, uh, I think for single family, I think it's more of a challenge versus, uh, 
you know, hotels and apartments. I don't know. I've never built a hotel and apartment yet. So, uh, I don't know. I'd be curious. Yeah. I, I don't know either. Like where I, I do know inspections are strict when it comes to commercial buildings and I've even heard more so than residential, but it's also, it's like you have a lot more people involved. You have a lot more higher paid people, more educated people doing these processes where it's not so fragmented as single family construction uh, to where like we're building, we're an individual one-off builder that's building a house. Like that is completely different than a production builder. Cause you look at some of these neighborhoods, how fast they build neighborhoods and like, yeah. they have all the same inspections we do, but they know the process and it runs through it to where it's like, they have somebody that's there, an inspector. It's basically there every single day going through every single house. Oh, and they have somebody that, that manages every they're single They're not one of building houses. like in a historic district. They're not building in, you know, where they know that they're not going to have all these stupid guidelines, regulations and all this crap. They're more focused on, the outskirts where it's less regulated there's nothing and they're buying a whole you know amount of acreage and they're putting up a whole subdivision so it's like you know yeah you build one spec home everything's good all ass you know what i mean after mm -hmm. that everything stays as it is yeah. so i mean yeah it's uh interesting but as we get start getting closer to the end uh, I did also want to remind you guys is that I interviewed a local real estate investor, Seth Teal of Somos Real Estate, and he's actually on one of the city boards that we've been talking to and everything when, as we get through our build process and all the headaches we're going through. So that episode is going to come out in two weeks for Tips for the Pro. So make sure you are subscribed to our YouTube channel to not miss it. We talked a lot of, about about a lot of different things about the market. Uh, his ex, he expects actually home prices to be coming down because of uh, the way the market is acting right now. So very very good interview, very interesting interview is going to be coming out on uh, again in two weeks. So if you want to make sure not to miss it, then you're gonna want to be a part of our text community. So text us at CWTJ. 210-794-9898. You can find it in the chat and description below. Text us, be a part of the community. We share a ton of cool stuff with you guys and only you guys. So make sure you jump on that. But before we wrap up, I did want to touch on this because I talked about it at the beginning. And we're shifting gears from Elon Musk to Ray Dalio. Now Ray Dalio, billionaire, is coming out in support of Bitcoin, saying that he owns some Bitcoins and he rather own Bitcoins over bonds. So billionaire Ray Dalio, Bridgewater Associates, has the largest asset under management of any hedge fund with assets estimating at $140 billion. Naturally, much of Ray Dalio's investments philosophy may sound familiar to the Bitcoin faithful. Most, and this is from him, from Ray himself, most of what people think is money is really credit, and it does disappear. As implied by this, a big part of the deleveraging process is people discovering that much of what they thought was their wealth isn't really there. Uh, and he wrote that back in 2008. So Dalio backs investment in Bitcoin rather than a bond because he believes this strategy could lead the government to reduce its control over the monetary system. The statement is quite surprising because his $140 billion fund held substantial investments in government bonds and treasuries. Dalio, who believes Bitcoin's greatest risk is its success, says he owns 
some Bitcoin, but didn't say how much. Early this year, Ray Dalio expressed his intention of investing in cryptocurrency to protect investors against currency devaluation. Dalio said in a Coindesk conference that cryptocurrency can work as the best store of value in a volatile environment, and he has expressed concerns over the Treasury's behavior towards digital currencies. He claims that the U.S. government could put strict regulations, controls, or might completely ban cryptocurrencies due to increasing competition with treasury bonds. So one of the great things I think as a worry is the government has the capacity to control Bitcoin or the digital currencies uh, to control Bitcoin or the digital currencies. They know where they are and they know what's going on, he said. So while he is in Bitcoin because he feels that it makes the most sense, right? It feels like it's, uh, he's saying the same thing that we have. You got to protect yourself against the devaluation of the dollar. He looks at Bitcoin almost like gold. He looks at it it as a protection of the value. Well, it's also the thing we talked about too. Like what is the biggest risk is the government stepping in and controlling it. They're like, oh, they can't control it. I'm not going to hinge my entire wealth on the fact that U.S. government can't come in and control something. When like, it's one of the things I've learned. I just study economies. Like never, like even thing we looked at, like oh, this economy is going to crash. Like well, the Fed saved it. Oh, that's fake. Well, they've been saving it for what? When does the old become the new? Now, where it's like they've been doing it for 14 years. So everything's inflated. Like everything shifts. Like I'm not going to bet against the Fed and the U.S. government to be able to like just come unhinged and lose all of its faith and power because of one new technology comes along and wipes out with the last 250 years of entrenched ability into the financial systems. So yeah. you're saying that the U.S. economy, the U.S. government can control Bitcoin? To the effects that everyone says that Bitcoin can overthrow the dollar. That's where I kind of go at. It's like when you look yeah. at the amount of trade in everything, the organizations to where like you come across, like if companies band together, countries band together around, it was like, yeah, we're not going to use it. It becomes a black market. So that, that, that point that you're just hitting right there is what I was thinking is the only way I believe the U.S. can actually do something detrimental to Bitcoin is if they say they come together with other major countries in the world and say, hey, look, if this shit hurts us, it's going to hurt you. Yeah. You know, either we oh, come together sure. and we start battling cryptocurrency or it's going to hurt us all. Oh, drastically. Now, now. That being said, what's stopping China and Russia getting together and saying, F you, we're going to back crypto and that's to, what to purposely, right, to have that battle? Mm-hmm. Because right now it's like, you know, yeah, we don't have wars anymore of like world war and stuff like that, but we are having currency wars. We people, These countries are fighting continuously with interest rates with money with printing with borrowing that's their war right now that's who they're using to fight these wars you know what they're using so it's there like was a interesting t- uh, conversation i heard from uh, the rebel capitalist with peter shift and peter shift is it take him everything he says with a grain of salt but you just look at what this pandemic's done is the u.s is still a massive creditor nation and it's got even bigger uh, consumer nation and our deficits that 
previous administration was harping on have now gotten even worse as far as our trade deficits with everyone else. Like we're consuming the world's products and our money is going somewhere else, loading everything up with debt from other places right. to where like, at what point do they shift and say, you know what, we're just going to sell to our own people now. Like we don't need the U S to be the consumer nation of the world. Um, but there's nothing that does stop that. But right now it's like, the U.S. dollar is still the reserve currency in the world, and it is still used in the vast, and it's not even close to number two as far as the number or the value of the market that is traded with those currencies. Yeah. Where if the U.S. dollar just comes out and says, mm, we're the, the treasury, the Fed, the United States says you can't transact with dollars if the U.S. is involved if it, via cryptocurrencies. Like, what is that going to do? Yeah. And it makes it very hard to where it's like, I think if it does overthrow, it's coming too much. I, I call it black market um, power that governments and municipality and governments around the world, can, I think, could band together, two of them. You know, like even if the U.S. and China or U.S. and Europe came through and said, mm, we're not going to back this. And it's like you're going to create all kinds of currency issues. So I think that is something that is that is the risk. And he even says it is like the greatest risk to Bitcoin is Bitcoin's success. Yeah. And that's kind of where I go back to Amazon. The greatest threat to Amazon is Amazon's own success because you start infringing on too many other parts and too many people ban against you because now it's one against the many. Well, it comes like you got 75 companies and then Amazon. Well, the uh, government's going to go towards the people and the, the, yeah. the where the not necessarily where the money's at, but where they're getting their votes and power from. So it's like, so now that brings up a different question in my head then. So taking Amazon into consideration, right? You had Amazon working off of the mind of Jeff, Jeff Bezos, right? Yeah. So his innovation, uh, call it morale, everything, whatever you want to call it, was leading the growth of Amazon. Now with Jeff, Jeff Bezos stepping down, he's no longer the, own, uh, the CEO or anything of uh, Amazon. He's stepping down. Do you believe an, the new CEO versus the uh, general consensus of Bitcoin is more what's going to be more powerful? Because like I think Jeff Bezos is a smart businessman where if he wouldn't get too greedy, where he would turn everybody against him. What he wants is more people to love Amazon, yeah. not hate Amazon, right? Because it makes his brand, as it's shown, stronger. You know, if you start getting turning people against you, eventually they will put you out. You understand? Yeah. So I, that, but that was Jeff Bezos. We don't know what the new, you know, the new policies are going to be moving forward for that. But crypto, on the other hand, is there isn't one person running it that we know of. <laughs> um, it's more of like a general consensus. So like with something like that, I'd just be curious as to like, does it really compare what's going to happen with crypto as Governments step in more, you know, uh, Randy was saying that China is creating its own crypto now. So I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I, all that being said, I still believe like everything. Crypto is a chip on the board. Well, it's also you one of the things like I think it, wrong. Like it's not cryptocurrencies. I think uh, digital currencies. Well, I mean, there's a difference between digital currencies and like I think that's the wrong name where people think it's like it's a currency. It's not a currency. Like it doesn't have liquidity. It's an asset like gold. I, I think it is more like, yes, it has some more currency aspects than gold does, but it's... You can spend it better than gold. Yeah, it's, it's easier to spend than gold is, but and convert into dollars in, on a more efficient, quicker scale. Yeah. But it's also one of the things that's it's way not accepted everywhere. too volatile 
of something to where like what i mean there are some people that believe in it and are converting their wealth and saying i want to be paid in cryptocurrency and stuff like that yeah. and that i mean you're early adopters but it's like just like recently like we saw it almost drop like what was it got as high as 60 now it's hovering down in the 30s yeah so it's like it's drastically down so why a comp why would a company say i'm switching to all of my money via cryptocurrencies and digital like it's too volatile to be for like well, a I think even like, you look at banking and debt and, like, and you look at get. alio like even his investment strategy he's not an all-in on anything no you know i think as a smart investor you should never be all in on the damn thing you know you should be diversified you know you should be you know a little bit here a little bit there you know what are two investments that are the complete opposite of each other invest a little bit in each one because if one blows up the other will come down and vice versa right so I think as an investor, you need to diversify. You need to be able to be spread out. Like we heard that one idiot that he's 96% in Bitcoin. I'm like, my God, you know what I mean? Like, I wonder until when, you know, I wonder until when he's going to be that 96%. Oh, God, the, just, the level of risk is Well, just right now, it's insane. like you almost lost 50% of your wealth in the matter of the last month. Yeah. Like you're just like, well, you can see those wild swings. Well, everyone says that when Bitcoin's on a high, but how's that feel when it just dropped half and it's like, shit, my wealth just dropped in half. And now I'm like trying to convert to dollars yeah. to use that. And then the, God, the trying to track the tax implications of that he's 96% in Bitcoin. Like every time you need to buy something, you got to track that for taxes, yeah. for losses and gains and pay taxes based on all that crap. Like, oh, that'd be a nightmare. Yeah. But Maybe that maybe he's so wealthy that his four percent's like a million dollars or something. I don't know. And uh, another word, another topic. If you do live in San Antonio, you want to make sure to join one of our property tours. I'm gonna be doing one today of a project that we just finished. We're gonna walk through, go over the numbers, go over everything. Uh, in order to do that, just text us property tour to two one zero seven nine four nine eight nine eight. And I usually. Put it out, and the first couple people to respond are the ones that come along because, you know, we can't have a large group of people. This house has been sold, so we got to respect the property. <laughs> uh, so pretty much I'll, I'll put out how many people are, are to come, and the first ones to respond can tag along. So make sure you check that out. And with that, we're going to wrap up this week's episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you did, give us that thumbs up. Helps us out tremendously. And remember... We are on audio podcasts as well, so you can search any of your podcast app and listen to us while you're on the go. With that being said, thank you all for watching, and we'll catch you next week. Bye-bye, bye-bye, bye-bye.